is from Acts chapter 25 and verse 23 and following. So, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You think? So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Quote, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And he went on, of course, from there. So, uh, now this may sound a little unrelated, but a lot of you have tried various diets. I think uh, Al asked that last week about different diets people tried. Anybody ever tried a diet of worms? A diet of worms. Now, don't knock it until you've tried it. A diet of worms. What does that have to do with anything that this passage is saying? Oh, it does. Uh, the diet of worms um, is, a, is actually a famous, a, a significant historic and historical event that took place, believe it or not, some 500 years ago this week. Something of an anniversary of this event called the Diet of Worms. And that, that event was basically a kind of a trial. Not... Too much unlike this trial that Paul's in, uh, not depicted in, this, this depiction is actually of the Diet of Worms, but you know, it sort of bears the same resemblance. You, you still have one man looking at the most powerful people in his, in his world and being given a few minutes anyway to speak his mind to them. Under, you know, what we could probably imagine is a whole lot of pressure. A lot of intimidating pressure. That's what we have here. Well, have you ever been on the spot? Anyone here? You ever been, you ever been put in front of a group of people? Questioned? Uh, sort of grilled about what it is you believe and why? Anyone? Any kind of, any kind of situation like that? put the fear into you you were under the white hot spotlight people wanted to know why, what do you think about why do you say what you say what's your thought on it 
not always necessarily a friendly crowd. Well, Paul was in that situation numerous times. Numerous times. Now, for most of us, I mean, for most people, to be honest about it, that, that kind of scenario that I've described, where you would be where you would be in front of a lot of important people, a crowd of people, and not just any people. I mean, any crowd could be intimidating, but a crowd of important people, uh, people with re- people, you know, people who really carry some weight. That's a, that's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? Uh, for a lot of you, that I mean, you know, you probably you'd rather swim with the gators. For a lot of you, that's that's scarier than uh, than than uh, you know. You know, jumping jumping out with a with a parachute that I packed for you. I mean, it's you think no way, I, I could I, I just couldn't do it. The the weight of it, the pressure, the the spotlight, all those people staring at you, and they're not necessarily your friends, and some of them maybe have to get you. Terrifying. But for Paul now, <laughs> it was uh, it was fairly regular. For Paul, it was just his ongoing opportunity as a missionary. So just to sort of take you down the memory lane of the book of Acts, for Paul, how many times this happened, uh, you may recollect Paul and Silas, so they take out, get far, far out away from home. That's dangerous anyway, isn't it? Far away from home. One, th- one thing to face a, a tough crowd in, in confines you're familiar with, or and, and in a political context, or in a, in, a, in a place where you kind of feel like you have some rights against them anyway, there's only so much they can do. But, but what if you face that... Um, overseas somewhere. Right, we, we've heard in here before, missionaries that we support testify about situations they were in, you know, in other places in the world. And what, it's it's scary enough for you just to have a crowd of people, all eyes on you, waiting for you to say, to listen to you, to give your answer and your role response. That's scary enough. Imagine if they also had a more power than than we in, in our country have against each other. But what if you knew that your answer could get you killed, which is the case in many places? Just ask Muslim converts all over the world. You know, you got to really count the cost before you open your mouth in some places and testify. Paul and Silas went way, way out away from their safe confines into other cities, foreign cities, where they were not. Uh, they were not at all... They, their way of thinking was... Um, this is sort of an understatement, really. It was not the norm. They were not in the majority. So they were hauled in front of a bunch of magistrates in Philippi, uh, but they didn't get a whole lot of a hearing there. You know what they got there is they got beaten with rods and put in shackles. That's not really a fair hearing. Then uh, you might remember after, shortly after that, Paul is in Athens. And there he did get he did get some time to speak because Athens was a kind of a free speech area, right? Because all this, all the scholars and philosophers and everybody would sit around, and so he did get the chance to talk to them. Some people hauled him out there. Hey, go talk to these these guys would be interested in all the stuff you've been teaching, and they did listen to him. And he took advantage of it, didn't he? Remember, he took full advantage of that opportunity. So that that one went pretty well. Later he was put before a proconsul in Corinth. But again, he didn't get much of a chance to, to speak there. I mean, he's ready every time, but he doesn't always get his shot. Then on to Ephesus, where this silversmith named Demetrius got really angry because he was losing revenue 
because the Christians were influencing the people, and the silversmith worked at the temple or the shrine of Artemis, a goddess, making little thingies, and people like to buy those thingies. But once people turn away from worshiping that, then uh, you know you lose business. By the way, if if uh, if the gospel ever penetrates a, a society, are some people going to lose business? Yeah, some people are going to, and and they will not react well to it. So sometimes, when, if you pay close attention at the source of hostility, the sources of hostility in the world aimed against the church, you'll often see that that a big part, a big motive for the hostility is that the church's influence cuts into their bottom line, depending on their industry or business. And they don't like that. So all these people in Ephesus, on, on account of that, they, they got a big crowd together. And they rushed into a, a theater. They, they got a couple of Paul's companions. Big angry group of people in a confined space. Paul, it says, wanted to go into that theater and address that crowd. The guy was fearless. And some of Paul's other friends wouldn't let him go for fear of his safety. But he wanted to. He was ready to. That's just kind of the guy he was. That's what he did. Let me, let me go talk to him. I got, a, I got a captive audience. Now, how many of you think that way? Ooh, a captive audience. Give me the chance. Give me a chance to talk with him. No way. You'd run and hide for the hills. The, you know, you'd leave that mic sitting sitting on the stage never go pick that thing up then then of course back to Jerusalem at the temple and and this these are the events that have led to, 20, to chapter 25 back in Jerusalem at the temple a very very hostile crowd of Jews worshiping who knew who he was who knew what he had been doing who had heard his reputation and everything and yeah then it almost got deadly for Paul right there very mad group of people. He's going to desecrate our temple. And had it not been for the intervention of Roman soldiers, I mean, he, they might have got him. So then, so there, so, but he did get the chance briefly to address that mob as well. Is it easy talking to a mob? No, I'm going to say, I mean, hard may not be good enough, to, a good enough way to put that. It's, it borders on just impossible to speak to a mob. And mobs are not in their right mind. Uh, so, just as some leaders go out to try to talk to mobs, and it never ends well for them. <laughs> they try to appeal and appease and say everything. It's, just, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a good context for, for a sane, reasonable discussion. People are not, people are not thinking in a rational way when they're, in, when they're whipped up like that. But Paul went ahead and spoke his mind anyway, and it could have got him killed. But the Roman soldier intervened. Then he had. Then then he has to. Then he's in front of the Sanhedrin. They're not fans of his. Then he's questioned by a, a local governor named Felix, and Felix happens to have a Jewish wife, and they're kind of interested in Paul, because he is he is a fascinating figure and he's well spoken, and so he does he does sometimes captivate people a little bit. Wow, who is this guy? Because he's very well educated. But then when his message actually comes out, you know, a lot of people don't. Care for it. So with Felix, you know, he was interested in it. Oh, this guy's interesting. I'd like to hear more. Then it says when Paul got around to uh, things like sin and judgment, it says that Felix was like, well, okay, that, that's, that's enough for today. I'll get back to you some other time. Some other time was a long time. 
So, so when we get to the, when we get to this in 25, what we just read, and it says they brought Paul out to let him speak. He's been sitting, he's been sitting incarcerated for two years because Felix just left him. Didn't know what to do. It says he would hear from him from time to time, partly because he's looking for a bribe. But he's just Paul's just been waiting, waiting for his chance. And finally his chance came. So after two years, he now gets this hearing. There's a new governor now named Festus. And there's a new king appointed over Judea named Herod Agrippa. And he's there and his sister Bernice. And we'll say more about them at a later time. That's an interesting couple of people too. But finally, after all this time, after the two years he's sitting here, he hears the words we read in that verse. He finally hears, okay, Permission to speak. Permission to speak. And here's a question for us. Do we take advantage? Do you? Do I? Do we take advantage of the opportunities that we get when we get permission to speak? Now, some Christians might get into the habit of not waiting around for much permission. And you can cross a line. You can cross a line that offers you diminishing returns if you never care about permission. <laughs> In other words, I don't I don't care about um, I don't I, decorum there's no time for that. So you can cross over all the lines of decency and really force the issue on people. I'm going to talk and you can't stop me. Sometimes you, um, there are those. I, I even know. I've even known some people who have done street preaching. But now the ones that I've known that I thought were doing a good job of it would would never force anyone to listen to them. They didn't want to. They're just out in the open air. But if you want to just walk by them, you can just walk by them. They're, they're not going to harass you. But I've seen street preachers that will harass people. <laughs> Get in their face. Not let them go. That's very, very extreme. They, they represent a teeny tiny sliver of, of, of self-identified Christians. But, you know, personality-wise, you know, some Christians could not care about permission at all. Uh, you're going you're gonna to hear my view. I don't care what you say. I don't need to be invited. I'm coming. I'm, you're going to listen to me. Well, Paul doesn't have a lot of opportunity for that anyway. I mean, he's on, he is in a legal system where he, he, couldn't, he couldn't get this trial. He couldn't get this audience with these important people unless they gave it. But it is worth noting that he speaks when he gets the permission. <clears throat> Here he gets it. And if Christians were as polite as humanly it is possible to be, and would only speak in a faithful way when the light is green and the door is open. If we just did that, that would be a massive improvement. Because probably the 98% of Christian people are not don't have to heed the admonition I gave about, hey, don't be too loud and boisterous and overbearing. A few do, but I would say that most Christians, probably, if anything, we've got the other problem, which is 
even when permission is given, we're just so scared. We're just so sheepish about it. It's just, we're just, you know, I don't want people to think they're wrong of me. Don't we all do that? I mean, no one in, we would all, we would just be lying, any one of us, if we said we never feel that way. Everybody feels that way. Everybody feels that way. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to beat that. I don't want to. And that's even when permission is given, when when there is an open forum for it, when, when you can sense somebody's willing to listen, or a group even for that matter. And Paul here is given the opportunity. The thing about him is Paul is ready, as that verse in the beginning of that first slide said, in and out of season, as he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He's ready in and out of season. His little way of saying, I'm always ready. Sometimes I don't even necessarily feel like it, but I'm always ready. Oswald Chambers wrote about this in his devotion on this. He said, this means that we should be prepared whether we feel like it or not, regardless of all the other circumstances. Some people, Chambers said, are, as he put it, totally unemployable in the spiritual realm. Totally unemployable. They won't work at all. They just even if you lay out the red carpet and give them a golden opportunity, they won't take it. they just not prepared to. There are different ways to be prepared to. Uh, sometimes we focus on only the, um, the intellectual side of being prepared. Well, I don't, they're gonna, you know, I can't answer people's questions. I don't know everything. Well, none of us knows everything. Paul, for all his learning, he still wasn't omniscient. I mean, they could have stumped him. None of us knows. There. If knowing everything is a prerequisite, then uh, then we, our mouths will remain shut for all time. A lot of the preparation, though, isn't even about that. A lot of the preparation is is spiritual, also emotional. It's a matter of discipline. It's a matter of um, alertness to just be looking for the up. How many how many times have you thought after the fact? I you know I had a good opportunity there. Too late, because in the moment, you know, things are happening, you're busy, something's going on. And then afterwards you think, that person, you reflect on it later, that person said to me, or that group of people, what they said, they asked me a question, they said this or that, you know, they really opened the door for me. And, you know, I blew it. In and out of season, he said. What if we were called, what if you were called upon in a situation like that, to speak to a crowd. Uh, I just wonder, I wonder how many of us would be prepared. It's a rare spotlight. We shouldn't, go, we shouldn't expect this would happen very often. It, didn't, it happened to Paul more often than almost anyone, most people who have ever lived. He was in a very, I mean, Paul was the, you know, the pioneer missionary for the church. We can expect him to be in more of those situations, maybe than the average person. But we we, we shouldn't think it might never happen. And the persuasive communication, the clear expression of the truth of God, that's what's called for. And it can still be fairly simple. And so there have been a few great examples from history. And that brings us back to 500 years ago. April of 1521. 500 years before this particular April that we're in now. So let me give a little context for it. In the Middle Ages, 
They had the Holy Roman Empire. So it had a Holy Roman Emperor, an extremely powerful individual. Habsburg dynasty. You guys remember history class from school? No. The imperial estates. The imperial estates directly under the control, under the jurisdiction of this this so-called empire. So you remember, Roman Empire was long gone, long gone. It fell. Barbarians, it was over with, long gone. But in the year 800, the Pope put a crown on top of this Frankish king named Charles. Charles the Great. Charlemagne. Charlemagne. And he said, you now are the emperor. The Roman Empire is back, baby. It's back. Only now, now the church is a powerful, integral, central part of it. And so it's the holy Roman Empire. That's how that started. And it endured for hundreds of years as a powerful political body. And there was a thing they called it the imperial diet, which does not refer to the regular menu that the emperor observed. But the diet, the imperial diet, was sort of the deliberative body or leadership council. The word diet comes from Old Greek and Latin, dieta. It would refer to a daily ration or an allowance. You can sort of see how it came to refer to your daily food allowance or what you have, your regular food portions. But it had bigger meaning than that. It would refer also to an appointed time of day. And it came to refer to assemblies that meet. Right? Governing assemblies, a meet to decide important things. And so in the imperial cities, they would have these meetings, call them, the, call them diets, and they would be held in these various important locations. One of those important locations was a German city called Worms, spelled Worms. Worms. On the Rhine River, about 40 miles south of Frankfurt, there had been a lot of these diets held there. In 829, in 926, in 1076, in 1122, and in 1495. You know, I memorize all these dates, you know. That's what, anyway, that's what the internet told me. That those were different, uh, those were dates on which they had held dice. So it's, so it's, it's a place where they had done this before. However, this one that took place in 1521 would definitely become far and away. The most famous one ever held. So that even now, if you're ever reading any kind of any kind of text that refers to the quote the Diet of Worms, they ain't talking about the one from 829 or not. No, they're talking about the one from 1521. Because you see, at this time, the European powers, the Roman Catholic Church, had a problem. Um, it was a movement underway that had been started by this monk named Martin Luther. So Pope Leo X had issued a document against several of the points that Luther had written about and posted. 41 of them, I think. He had a real problem with them. A real problem with them. And, and Luther had been summoned to this important meeting with the emperor himself presiding. The emperor himself, along with these other, the electors and these other important men. This is what this painter depicted. He's invited to this meeting. And really, that's, that's, that's not doing it justice, invited to a meeting. I mean, he's told, boy, get over here and answer for yourself. Because you're causing a lot of trouble. 
And he knows good and well the power they hold over him. And some people said, you know, you probably shouldn't go. But he didn't have a lot of choices besides go hide. So he did come. And it made for a very, very famous trial. So the great historian and Luther biographer, Roland Bainton, described the setting here like this. Quote, on the 16th of April, Luther entered Worms in a Saxon two-wheeled cart with a few, a few companions. The imperial herald preceded, wearing the eagle upon his cloak. And although it was the dinner hour, 2,000 turned out to conduct Luther to his lodging. On the following day, at 4 o'clock, Luther was waited upon by the herald and the imperial marshal, who conducted him furtively to avoid the crowds, to a meeting of the emperor, the electors, and a portion of the estates. The monk stood before the monarch. The scene lends itself to dramatic portrayal. Here was Charles, heir to a long line of Catholic sovereigns, such as Maximilian the Romantic, Ferdinand the Catholic, Isabella the Orthodox. Charles was the scion of the House of Habsburg, Lord of Austria, Burgundy, the Low Countries, Spain, and Naples, Holy Roman Emperor, ruling over a vaster domain than any save Charlemagne, the symbol of the medieval unities, the incarnation of a glorious if vanishing heritage. And here before him, a simple monk, a minor's son, with nothing to sustain him save his own faith in the Word of God. Here, the past and the future were met. Very fascinating, pivotal moment in history. Just think of it. What would you have done? The pressure like this. This is, this is, this is a tremendous amount of pressure. He's looking up at a man who, has, who holds unbelievable power encircled by a whole bunch of other people who are extremely powerful. And he has none. Politically speaking, he has none. And he was told there by... He was basically told the setup for this is not, per se, genuine interest in what he has to say. We'd really love to learn from you what you're, the things you're teaching. Help us understand them better. The setup was more like, hey, uh, here's your chance to save your skin and do the right thing and renounce all of these terrible things you, you've taught and written about. We'll wait. Go ahead. This is very unequal balance here between the man and those other men. This is, this is a gnat looking up at a giant being told what he had better go ahead and say. Because we may not give, we're only going to ask you twice. Christians can feel like that. Do you expect in the world that you're going to, that, that every place that you go, you're going to get a fair hearing? That you're going to be received in good faith? That what people say or think about you will be accurate, fair-minded? Is that what you think? Well, I don't know what world you live in. 
But that's not how this one works. I mean, Paul didn't get that. Which reminds us, did Jesus get that? Is that the kind of, did he get that wonderful, fair hearing and just kind of treatment before the courts? So if he didn't get it, and if Paul didn't get it, and in 1521, Luther knew good and well that's not what he was getting. So then what to do? Well, you know, to really learn how it turned out and what, in, in Paul's case and in Luther's, you got to come back next week for part two of this. Couldn't do all this in one, one time. But I will give you the spoiler on it. They did pretty well. They did pretty well for themselves. But, you know, what about us? We, you know, today, times always change. A lot of the fear a Christian today might feel is not even in person, frankly. People feel a lot of fear if they if they catch the sense that that a whole bunch of people that they that they're not even in the room with them have turned on their opinion uh, because social media has sort of you know created like a big arena of people that aren't physically there but they're out there like if you were standing in a in a massive arena whatever the biggest arena is we have that holds the most people if it was packed to the gills pre-covid style packed house of, of people and if and if they were yelling out to you they didn't like whatever it is you stand for your beliefs your point of view and we're letting you know it now imagine they're all there but but you have your ears are plugged and you're blindfolded so you can't see or hear them but you know they're there that's sort of what a lot of people feel like when they take to the internet and they feel like for some, you know, that they feel like everybody disagrees with me. Oh my gosh, so many people coming after me. It's like a throng of people that just aren't in the room with you. But you, for some reason, that pressure still seems to hold. People still feel it. They, we know they feel it by how they respond to it. Often not the best ways. Sometimes to be fearful, to run and hide, to, to escape it, to, to jump off. Sometimes to lash out, to lose their mind. And just start brawling like a madman. <laughs> you know, all kinds of things. That that tells you that, that they must be feeling that pinch. Whatever the context is, however the technology changes the, the dynamics of it. It's still the same basic thing, is it not? It's the same basic thing still where, like Paul, permission to speak, open forum, platform, ready for you, what shall you say? And you're no, and you know that you've got you've you got to be wise about it. These people like Paul didn't go looking for this. Paul could not have arranged this himself, right? He couldn't he couldn't have pulled any levers to get himself in front of these powerful men. He wasn't looking for it. I imagine he might have preferred to get his audiences with regular people, like when he's in the school of Tyrannus, in the hall, in the lecture halls, in the synagogues, just talking to the regular people. Those were the audiences I think he was mostly after. But he just found himself in front of a very important audience. We don't go looking for those things. We, the Christian ought not sit out and say, my mission field is, is a camera somewhere that's going to have a national audience. 
But you may not get that, and you may not be called to that. You, you can just go out to the regular places where the regular people are. However, because we never know, you know, you ought to be at least prepared for the possibility. If you're faithful as a witness, it may just happen that God would orchestrate events to put you in a situation like that. Paul was a faithful witness, and so it wasn't his doing to speak to this governor, this Sanhedrin, a high priest, a king of Judea, and ultimately in Rome. He didn't choose that. Those people all shuffled him around and put him in those positions. But ultimately, it was God who did it. It was God's doing. Because he said, my man here is faithful. And I can put him in these positions. And he will not let me down. I can put him. I can give him that platform and that microphone in front of these people. And he'll do right. And if you are a faithful witness, who knows? You may be called upon. And that is neither a reason, that is neither the reason for you to be faithful. <laughs> that wouldn't be the pure motive for you to be a faithful witness. Be just because you want to hog a microphone somewhere. Nor should it be, nor should it be that which would drive you off and say, well, I don't want to be because I don't ever want to be in that situation. Those are both bad responses. What's the right response? Be a faithful witness. In and out of season. Take the opportunities given. And be ready just in the case that somewhere down the line you find yourself with the cameras on or in a situation or before certain people of prominence or influence where now permission to speak go you know the lights on you cameras pointed at you and the red light goes to green Live air, it says. You know, like the old TV, there'd be a little sign that said, live air. That's a scary moment if you see live air. That's why people freeze. Anybody here have been thrown out on a stage and you froze up? You had it all planned and then you couldn't talk. Knees start knocking. Yeah. Pray God gives you the ability. Pray the Spirit gives you the words, gives you the utterance to do it. One time... Many, many years back, in the Utah days, we had this. We started up this college-type ministry. There'd be a couple of dozen show up for some of the things we'd do, and you know, this is this was a place and this was a campus where, you know, it, the the standard traditional Christian understanding of things was a, was a minority view. But I got this call one day, and. This person said, we're doing a graduate forum with these blah, blah, blah. I can't remember what it was. Something in the psychology department or social. I don't know what it was. And we're just inviting local people who represent different religious traditions to come and do a panel. And, I, and they said, you know, you represent a Protestant Baptist uh, perspective according to what we looked up here. Okay, yeah. Will you come? Okay. So I showed up, and they sit us on this. It was one, you know, it was one of those sort of stadium seating, larger rooms. They put us on a platform, and they started introducing people. And this guy down here is the rabbi of the synagogue, and this guy down here is the next is the imam of the mosque, and then his guy. They they they, they, they dug up everything you can think of. And then oh, here's this guy, 
He's a Protestant, you know, Baptist, and runs it, you know, they got this ministry now. I mean, you know, I was, uh, I was at the, at that time, I was younger than most of those people on that stage. I was, I, I was dressed just like, you know, I didn't even have a tie. I don't know. Some of the people were wearing their whole, their garb and their whole deal. I just felt like, I'm not sure I even belong here. I just look like some regular nobody up here. These guys look like some kind of important religious leaders. And I thought, oh, what am I going to and, and it became apparent to me that this, you know, this place was pretty crowded. A bunch of grad students and all this stuff. And I thought, you know, they're not interested in doctrine here. They're trying, they're, they're I don't even remember what their question was. How does your religious tradition address the blah, blah, blah? I don't even know. I can't even remember. too long ago. And my brain don't, you know, doesn't hold that much information that long. But I, can remember, I remember some things, though. I remember thinking, oh, boy, I was toward the end of the line. I'm going to get called on. What am I going to say? I hadn't really prepared. I didn't know. I prepared a little bit like things I could say. And, I, and part of me thought, is it too late to get out of this? I'm already sitting up here. Is it too late to get out of this? It would probably be noticeable if I just got up and walked at this point. I don't know anyone here. I wasn't sure what it was. It's not like I had told a bunch of people, hey, come support me. I actually thought it was going to be a small class. <laughs> I didn't know. So I had no companions. I mean, I think I think a couple of guys came just to whatever. But, but I'll tell you, I just I sort of prayerfully thought, okay, Lord, help me say something that's not heretical or stupid or or wouldn't drive people away, but and also doesn't you know doesn't just look too weird and cheesy. They probably have preconceived notions of what I would be, so I don't want to come off like I don't want to fulfill whatever their stereotypes might be of me either. You know, because I could have been like if they say, oh this guy's a Protestant Baptist, I could have said. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has sent me here to bless. I could have put that on, and they went, that that would have made them go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we expected. But I don't want. I don't want to walk. I just. I don't want to do that. I want to challenge them somehow, make them think, put a stone in their shoe, answer their question as best I can. But I'll, so I did the best I could. I think I got a couple of verses I was thinking of. Luckily, I had time to think while the other guys were talking. Along while I was simultaneously thinking, what is that guy talking about? Because I'm telling you. It was also an education on the way of the the way modern religious so-called religious leaders think today. Because anyway, I, I I may have been the only person that quoted any scripture to be honest with you <laughs> to him at all. And then I I quoted some C.S. Lewis. I thought he always goes over pretty well. He does some good lines. And and you know afterward, I had a bunch of those people say, "Man, that was really that idea made me a lot to think about." And there were a couple of them that a couple of them showed up at our Thursday meeting the next week. And you know, after but and then afterwards, of course, you think to yourself, I should have said this. Oh man, I could have said that. It's a good reminder, though. It's a real a real life reminder that I didn't know that was gonna happen. I just got a cold call. On on what was probably a landline, even. For those of you who remember. And that's all I got. And it was like, hey, this is coming up in a few days. And I and I didn't know how to prepare. And I just took the chance. Who knows when these things might happen for you in other times? So be ready. In season, out of season, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it. 
And even as next week, we'll see how they did. We'll look a little closer at what Paul said and what Luther said and the impact that those things had, the influence that they had. Because the number one thing we have, the probably the, the biggest obstacle we have, is probably just fear. Isn't it? It's just fear is the main thing that holds us back. But let me ask you something, saints. Has God given us a spirit of fear? No, quite expressly we're told God has not given us a spirit of fear. A spirit of what, though? Power, love, sound mind.